and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, we're talking the developmental model of couples therapy with founder, Dr. Ellen Bader. For more than 40 years, Ellen Bader has helped couples transform their relationships. She is widely recognized as an expert in couples therapy training. Ellen and her husband, Dr. Peter Pearson, are creators of the developmental model of couples therapy, which we will be talking about today. They're also the directors of the Couples Institute in Menlo Park, California. The developmental model of couples therapy is a model that teaches therapists how to diagnose, intervene, and significantly help troubled relationships. It's a model that doesn't focus on pathology, but instead emphasizes the role of development in relationships. It compares adulthood development of relationships to the childhood progression through typical developmental stages. According to the model, it's natural for relationships to change as partners spend more time together and develop as a team. But because partners do not always change in the same way or at the same time, potential challenges may develop over the course of a relationship. Conflict may arise when couples are not able to manage a new developmental stage or when Each partner is in a different stage. More about Ellen. She is the co-author of In Quest of the Mythical Mate, a developmental approach to diagnosis and the treatment of couples therapy, where the developmental model was first articulated. Another popular book, Tell Me No Lies, presents a fascinating account of the lies partners tell each other and ultimately how to face the truth and build a loving marriage. Ellen has presented workshops to therapists throughout North America, as well as Europe, Asia, South America, and Australia. And after years of training couples therapists at workshops and conferences around the world, Ellen has been a leader in creative, creating innovative, on-demand offerings for therapists and couples at thecouplesinstitute.com. And she'll talk more about that during the interview I really learned a lot, a lot of really powerful stories and practical techniques that all our listeners working with couples can try out after they listen to the interview. And after the interview, we'll be back to tell you about some interesting things going on in the world of the AAMFT. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. So pleased to be joined by the founder of the developmental model of couples therapy, Dr. Ellen Bader. Ellen, first question is always to our experts. We want to know about your therapeutic origin story. Where did your interest in working with couples come from? Great question. I love to start with that. I actually started out as a family therapist and I did my dissertation as a study of multiple family therapy. 
but I really saw how much the couple needed help. So that was one place that it came from. But the other place, which is probably the more interesting story, is after my husband and I got together and he had moved to California and we were starting our relationship, we said that we wanted to do something together and we weren't sure what it was. So we called it X and we spent about 18 months trying to figure out what was that thing called X. And we experimented with a whole lot of different things, including something as crazy as importing houseboats from Kashmir, India. And in the process of that, I was doing some training of therapists in Australia. He came with me. We did our first ever couples therapy training workshop, and people loved it and encouraged us to do more. So we graduated into, okay, we are going to specialize in working with couples. You're talking about your husband, Peter Pearson, also a co-founder of the Couples Institute. So I will ask about him later on as we go through the model, but that's a very interesting story. So it wasn't uh, houseboats uh, from Kashmir. It ended up being the developmental approach to couples therapy. How did that come about? Actually, I had been thinking a lot about couples and how their developmental process paralleled that of early childhood development. I had done in Boston once a workshop, just throwing out that idea to a group of therapists and people really resonated with it. And the more couples I started seeing, the more I thought there's a lot to this. And so it just, it's gradually grown over time, really, as we started deciding, okay, we are going to specialize. And in fact, when we started, this may sound funny to someone as young as you, but when we got started, we were told that we were going to starve and that you couldn't focus only on couples or you'd have to work at night forever, but you couldn't get much training in it because there just really wasn't a specialty of couples therapy. There was a lot of family therapy. So we had to go searching for whatever training we could find and then starting to develop more and more of our own. This is in the 80s, and you're right. If you were getting trained in couples therapy in the 1980s, it was behavioral couples therapy or behavioral marital therapy at the time, Neil Jacobson, and that was the only game in town, and we've progressed a lot over the last 40 years. So when you and your husband started doing this, give us, uh, locate us in time, give us a year. We know we're in California, but what year are we at? The first workshop I ever gave on this model was in 1980. We started the Couples Institute in 1984. But yeah, and we go back a long way and there really wasn't any training for us. And actually, in 1988, when our book came out for the first time, I was invited to do a bunch of workshops. And I would stand up in front of an audience and say, a whole lot of individual change can take place in the context of couples therapy. And people would fight with me. Couples therapy is not for individual change. And the field has evolved so much that sometimes I can't believe some of the things that we faced in those early years. And as many of our pioneers have done, they had to experience a lot of uh, ridicule and frustration before standing the test of time and really making their mark. So for those, even though this is not a new approach, uh, I think you probably pick up new followers and admirers all the time. Let's 
give a brief overview to the stages and maybe with the stage in each stage of the developmental model, the challenges that go along with that? Um, sure. And I will use the therapy language, the psychological language when I'm talking to couples. I don't title the stages exactly the same way, but basically what we say is that when two people meet, they fall in love. There's a period almost of temporary psychosis or a period, the honeymoon stage, where there's so much excitement and couples during that stage focus on the sameness and they focus on how they're alike. And the purpose of that stage really is bonding. And the purpose is bonding, connection, and really establishing a foundation on which they can build. And then what we see typically in couples, somewhere between one to two years together, if the relationship is progressing well, is partners will enter a stage of differentiation. And by differentiation, they start to take their partner off the pedestal. They face some disillusionment and they start to recognize their differences. They start to see that they're not really the same on so much. And they have to work out ways of managing those conflicts that come up with their differences. Now, unfortunately, too many couples never progress to that second stage. And so when couples don't progress, they end up with usually the hostile fighting relationships where partners are competing with each other, or they end up with very enmeshed, conflict-avoidant, intimacy-avoidant relationships. And a lot of the couples who come for therapy are couples who are stuck in not progressing into a full-blown stage of differentiation. Let me say for the therapist who's working with couples who are starting to differentiate, there is a fair bit of conflict. And the therapist needs to be able to be steady and know how to work with conflict when couples are in that early stage of differentiation. Over time, differentiating couples can be really enjoyable to work with. And couples are working out all kinds of things like, how do we deal with in-laws? How do we deal with separate friendships? How do we deal with our money? How do maybe we deal with religion or in these days, gender or so many different issues that come up that couples have to contend with. Then the third stage is a stage of individuation or a stage of who am I separate from how our relationship is faring. And in the third stage, often people are very involved in their careers or hobbies or things that they're doing apart from each other. And they really are developing their own self-esteem that's not dependent on how the relationship is going. And for, for some couples, this is very threatening because they can feel like they've fallen out of love or they're just not as important to each other as they used to be. But this stage has a real function in terms of, like I said, the self-esteem that's being developed and the individual capacities that are being developed.
Then if partners make it through that stage, they begin to reconnect. And in that stage, we call it the rapprochement stage. In that stage, you have a back and forth, a lot of independence, but also people reconnecting. Couples often are strengthening their sexual bond at this point. And so it's a challenging stage, and it becomes challenging if one or the other partner thinks that the other one is trying to pull them back to that early symbiosis where they couldn't be different. But couples who make it through this end up with what we call a stage of uh, synergy or mutual interdependence at the stage where one plus one is far greater than two. And in fact, people who are together at this point are really fun to be around. They live lives of vitality. They lead lives of two people as very whole people, but there's a vibrancy to the marriage or the committed relationship as well. You laid that out so nicely. I think many of our listeners would like many of their couples to be in that synergy stage. And it doesn't mean you can't use uh, therapy as a way to fine tune or maintain, but those stages, are they meant to be linear or can you jump back and forth between the stages over the life course of a marriage or a relationship? You don't have to be married, obviously, to apply these developmental stages. It has to be a committed pair bond, but do you find them linear? Do you find people going back and forth? There's definitely some back and forth. There's definitely the fact that both partners may not be in the same stage at the same time. There are periods, for example, after the birth, let's say, of a child, where it may be very developmentally appropriate to go back and be nesting and bonding and doing many of the things that they did originally in the first stage. But then as the relationship develops, it's easier to move into effective differentiation. So it's not completely linear. What is a challenge and what we see for sure is that when the individual partners end up more than two stages apart, then you often will see a divorce. That it's a common scenario where a couple got together, they bonded well. And then one partner does a lot of personal growth work. And it might be through being in therapy. It might be in other ways. But they really want to push the growth of their marriage. And the other partner digs in and doesn't want to. And when that happens and that goes on too long, then you many times will see a divorce. Our old classic uh, thinking of systems, a negative feedback loop triggering a positive feedback loop of trying to bring it back to the status quo, um, but the other partner wants to grow. So I imagine there is a lot of psychoeducation involved in this model, which in and of itself is a powerful intervention in couple and family therapy. Give us some examples of psychoeducation that you think every couple's therapist should have in their toolkit that correspond with using a model like yours? First of all, when couples come to therapy, they often feel like they're damaged goods. And so using the developmental stages and teaching about the developmental stages is one thing that can make a big difference in terms of people 
settling into therapy or realizing that they're not, there's nothing wrong with them. And in fact, we talk about our model as being very much of a growth model, not a pathology model. And so we'll use a lot of different kinds of education along the way to help people see different skills that they need to develop in order to support the growth of the relationship. One concept that we teach a lot about and can be summed up in learning to be curious instead of furious, that's learning how in moments of conflict to be able to ask really good questions. And we have a question deck that we use sometimes with people so that they can learn how to ask and not be so reactive to each other. A big concept that we use a lot is teaching partners how to not take things personally. The reactivity that goes on, the fighting that goes on is so rooted in partners taking something from each other personally and then fighting back on what they hear as a personal insult. And we have a variety of different stories that we use at different times to teach partners what it means not to take something personally. But those are a few examples of types of psychoed that I think are valuable. Share with us one of those uh, story that when you have a couple locked in that they they believe everything that their partner doing is a personal offense to them, how you use a story to help them get some space and see it from a different perspective. I probably can give you two. I just got off of a training call right before I got on with you. And in that particular couple, the husband was taking his wife has a, a very significant trauma history, and she was talking about how totally rejected she felt as a child, which was real, she was, and the amount of pain that caused for her. And then she said something like, and when you say no to me, I feel rejected by you too. And so we talked about the fact to him that she would feel rejected in that circumstance, no matter who she was with. And it was important for him to learn that her history is being brought into the situation. She has a trauma configurational reflex where she's likely to imagine something that may not be happening. And again, if he can step back, that's really valuable. I sometimes use a personal story, which is when I was growing up, my mother was obsessed with me being fat and would take me to weight doctors and all that kind of stuff. And so I always perceived myself as being very fat. And when I met Pete's mother, one of the first things that she said was, oh, she's so petite. Nobody in my life had ever called me petite before. And I use that story to say to people, what we're talking about is two mothers who have a completely different perspective of my body size, who I am. And that is located completely in who they are, not in who I am. And so I need to learn how to not personalize really what either one of them is saying 
and have my own sense of who I am and what I want and how I want my body to be. So those are two examples. You were mentioning people get stuck. It would seem you would see more couples when they're having trouble differentiating or having trouble coming back together, the the rapprochement, as you said. But whereas if you're in the bonding phase and you're intoxicated with the other person, you probably don't want a couple's therapist. Or if, like we're saying, if you're in this kind of synergy, pulling it all together, fine tuning, you may not have a lot of need for couples therapy. This model is a good way to view, again, in a non-pathologizing way where a couple is at. But I imagine you're assessing what stage they're in when they come to see you. So talk about from an assessment framework, how it works, uh, and then we'll talk about maybe specific techniques associated uh, with the model in each stage. From an assessment point of view, I think about a couple of problems that they're presenting as being pretty predictable based on how long the couple has been together And I have an assessment questionnaire that I developed called the couple's developmental history. So there's a lot of very specific questions that are asked on that, including things like, what was your first disillusionment? What happened? How did you handle it? Was it resolved or has it never been resolved? We ask questions about things like, How well does the couple tolerate time apart and having separate friendships, for example? The developmental questionnaire is something that I ask partners to fill out on their own, not to share their paper with each other, but really to give me as much information as they want to give me. And so that's one way that we assess. And a second way that we assess is using an exercise called the paper exercise. I'd love to hear about the paper exercise, please. It's an exercise that was originally developed by a woman named Susan Campbell in the book, The Couple's Journey, but she used it primarily with fighting couples, not so much as an assessment. And we've developed it and refined it slightly since then. The exercise goes like this. I have two people sitting in front of me And I ask the couple, are you willing to do an exercise? And most times they'll say yes. And so I hold a piece of paper in my hand. We'll just use a heterosexual couple. I say to the husband, looking very carefully, looking him in the eyes, this piece of paper represents something important to you. And I'd like you to take a minute and think about what it represents to you. And then I pause for a minute. Then I turn to her and I say, this piece of paper represents something important to you. And I'd like you to take a minute and think about what it represents to you. And again, pause a bit. And then I ask them to hold the piece of paper between them. So they each have one hand on an end of the paper. And then I say to them, I'm going to give you up to five minutes to decide who gets the paper without ripping or tearing it. You can do it verbally, you can do it non-verbally, but the end of the five minutes, decide who holds the paper. And then I watch, and sometimes I'll record it, especially if I'm doing it on Zoom or in my office, I'll record it on my iPhone. But 
I want to capture the way that the couple together manages that five minutes. And it is incredibly revealing. And there are certain things that I look for when I'm watching. The first thing that I'm looking for is, does each partner self-define? In other words, I looked them in the eye. I told them in the directions to pick something that mattered to them. So I want to see, do they tell each other what they picked? Does only one person say so, and then the other person just reacts to it? So I'm looking for how they manage coming forward and saying what matters to them. Then I'm also interested in, do they show an interest in the other? So are they able to ask questions like, what does it mean to you? Or why do you want it? Or are they able to show a genuine curiosity and interest and engagement with each other? Then I'm looking at how they manage the conflict because this exercise is perfectly conflictual. And so some couples will completely push the conflict under the rug and never acknowledge it. One couple that I did it with not that long ago, she says, when the exercise started, she says, or he said, I want it. And then she said, it's fundamentally more important to me than it is to you. And then he grabbed it. So that's an example of a couple who escalates conflict very fast and never did either one of them define what the paper was. Then I'm also looking at if they recognize the conflict, do they do anything? Are they able to negotiate in any way to move the conflict forward? Or are they a couple who can acknowledge the conflict, but then they have no skills and they're stuck around how to move that conflict forward? And at last, I'm also looking for their capacity to give and receive. Are they able to hear what the other one wants? And I've had people say things like, wow, what you want really is a lot more important than what I want. I'm very happy to give it to you. And it, they mean it. It's very heartfelt and they mean it. Some partners are not able to receive. So if the other one generously offers it, they might say, no, I don't want to be responsible for it. Why don't you take it? And so you get to see very quickly the capacity of each person on those five things that I just outlined for you. And when they're done, I'll ask them how they feel about how it turned out. I, I'll time it for five minutes. If they're not quite finished, I'll often give them an extra minute or two. And sometimes the healthiest couple don't finish it at all. But when it's over, I'll ask them how they feel, each feel about how it turned out, and whether they see it as characteristic of what goes on at home or not. And again, it's very revealing. And then I ask them for permission to share my observation and tell them what I learned about them and what I think might be an important part of our therapy. I love it. It's experiential. It gives you so much data on so many different levels, both the content, what they say, the process of how they communicate. And then you ask them permission to give them feedback. Our listeners like vivid stories or things they can do in the way you describe that. I think anyone with a modicum of experience working with couples could use that, whether you're a therapist in training or someone who's been doing it a long time, you could add that to your repertoire as an assessment technique. What's the most unique 
way you've ever seen that be done that has stood out with you? I, this one I will probably remember to my dying day. This was a couple who were doing the exercise actually as they were in a couples group that I was running with eight couples and they were sitting in the middle of a circle doing, agreeing to do this exercise. And in doing the exercise, what the husband picked for the paper was his inability to be emotionally available to his wife when their son had leukemia. And he talked about why he wanted to hold the paper because he felt like now he would be very different if they were to be in such a situation again. And they had just a beautiful, heartfelt exchange. People in the room were crying. And what was so interesting about it and so different from most is that he was really saying, in my holding this paper, I am actually giving you a tremendous emotional gift. And of course, she was able to accept it. And what she had picked was nowhere near as meaningful as that. I mean, she picked something about her education. And she was very happy to have him hold it. And like I said, she was crying at the end. So it was beautiful. Um, that's probably my most favorite moment with that exercise. Yeah, it's extremely powerful. Thank you for sharing that. So that is... A an assessment technique, when you think of other techniques associated with your developmental model that differentiated from other popular approaches to couples therapy, uh, what would you tell our listeners if they want to get more interested in what are some other uh, techniques to promote communication, to promote connection with the couple, depending on what stage they're at? Okay. I'll describe probably to you what is our most used intervention by therapists all over the world. And I want to say that this intervention will sound similar to things like the Imago dialogue that a lot of people are familiar with or other communication techniques, but there are some differences. We developed a process called the Initiator Inquirer, and couples initially think it's primarily for improving communication. And basically, there's two roles, and we talk about the fact that it's important to learn how to take turns, what you learned in kindergarten that you don't do when you're grown up. And so the initiating partner is the one who brings up what they want to talk about. They do it without blame or name-calling. And so they're going to essentially say, here's what I'd like to talk about. This is what I'm thinking or feeling. And then the part that's different in that role from a lot of other models is they understand that they are actually open to learning more about themselves when they're finished than they knew when they started. So their focus is on actually growth and development and learning about themselves. The inquirer role is one of first listening sometimes recapping, but learning how to ask very curious questions that are located in the experience of the initiator, not in the experience of the inquirer. And then if the couple is developed enough for this last part to 
give empathy and stay with empathy until you create a soothing moment, that real moment of connection, that moment when the partner feels seen and heard. So we've developed this technique massively over the years since we wrote our first book. And it really gives the therapist a way to see the developmental capacities that are missing for each partner on each side and to strengthen and support the development of those capacities. For example, a couple that are highly enmeshed, they're the ones that are conflict avoidant, highly enmeshed. What happens with these couples is that if one partner expresses something that they want, often the other one will go along with it without even thinking about it, or they'll give themselves up in order to be like the other one. And they don't have an experience of that. Those partners who have historically been called codependent don't initiate. So just putting them in the initiator role with some frequency is going to push their development for what they avoid or have avoided for years. The hostile fighting couple take things very personally. They're not able to step back and actually get inside their own skin and be able to respond other than in that reactive way. And then you have narcissistic clients, for example, who have low capacity for empathy. It's putting them in that inquirer role and working with them on the development of empathy pushes their development. We don't have the time today, but literally I've spent sometimes a full day teaching it and demonstrating for therapists different examples of ways that you can see where the growth edge is for each partner and how you help support that. So the initiator is interesting in the sense that many times in couples therapy, when you're trying to tell your partner something and have it reflected back to resonate, you already know this about yourself. But if you do this correctly as the initiator, you continue to learn about yourself. Back to what you said, it's both individual and couple growth. If I can ask you, because I do want to ask you about your relationship with Pete, both personal and professional, we've had several, like Gottman's, John and Julie Gottman, David and Jill Scharf, several famous husband and wife pairs. If you and Pete were to do this exercise, can you still, after all these years of using this technique, Ellen, can you still, as the initiator, learn something about yourself? I am curious what this looks like when two very experienced, both professionally and personal partnership when you try to do something like this in your own relationship? First of all, if we start to have a fight and one of us has our wits about us, that will say, let's use the initiator inquirer. So we have to decide who's going to be the person who's initiating. In my family, my mother could be very blaming at times, extremely blaming. And so I did not know how very well to bring things up in a way that wasn't blaming. And Pete has been very good with me over the years at being able to push me, essentially, by being an inquirer, but to push me to, to identify what I'm feeling underneath what, I, what the thing is that I'm initiating about or expressing. One of our challenges is 
dealing with household clutter because I like things really neat and he could care less. He'll say he has a really high tolerance for visual disarray. And we started to be able to solve it when he was able to help me talk about how much more creative I am when I'm in a clean space, an organized space, how much when I walk in and everything is a mess, it creates anxiety and it also creates, I have to clean it up before I can do anything. I've learned often from initiator inquirers with him to dig into feelings that either weren't permitted when I was a child or I didn't have good role models for how to express. When you all are doing your trainings, which we'll talk about in a second, do you do a lot of experiential role-playing back and forth with you and Pete? In all my training, we do a lot of experiential work. I think it's how therapists learn best. Without a doubt, for sure. Now, talk about the pros and cons, as I would ask many husband and wife teams of not only being in the same profession, uh, pioneering and perfecting the same approach. So what are the pros and cons of having uh, a spouse as a equally competent couples therapist? So I'll, I'll split your question into two parts. In terms of the developing the model and our clinical competence and the things that, you know, developing the model, it's been wonderful to have a partner to develop that with and to understand it with and to learn from. And we push each other in ways all the time. I think our model has become so widely respected because people see us implementing it in our own interactions with each other. And so that part's been really good. The part that's been the hardest of that is when we've written our books together or running the business together, where it's a different kind of task that it takes. And Pete is a high creative. He's a high visionary. He's also a, he's not organized and he'll be the first to say that. And when we've had deadlines or things like that, that are important to me or that I take seriously and he doesn't, that's those kinds of things have been a challenge. When you think of the future of the developmental model and the Couples Institute. You can also talk about that. What is your hopes for the future of your approach? Because you've been doing this a long time and you're very vital in one of the things and doing the show for the last five years and interviewing model developers. They do what they love because it fits their way of being. They're passionate about it. It doesn't feel like work. It's something they want to do. It's a great profession that as long as you stay attuned to yourself and to your relationship with others. You can't age out of it. You can stay vital. So what keeps you so vital and what do you hope for the future of your model and your institute? A few things. One is, you're right. I love what I do and it doesn't feel like work most of the time. And I'm excited where the model has evolved and the numbers of therapists from all over the world who train with us now. It's just been really satisfying. I've been training other trainers so that people younger than me will be able to carry the mantle. I talked with some younger therapists in Romania this morning who are going to be teaching it in Romania, and I have people in Canada and the U.S. So that that's one part of the future. Our daughter has started working with us, so she's another piece of the future. And 
a big thing that I'm working on right now and that I feel super passionate about is how couples start therapy and how therapists start at the very beginning. And I'm developing a, like a module for therapists that they could actually use. That's a combination of what you were talking about before, the psychoeducation that helps couples understand the process of the brain and how we trigger each other and what it takes to evolve as a couple. So instead of a therapist leaping into solving whatever the problem is that couples come in with, I want to create a way to lay a much stronger foundation of what's involved in good, solid couples' work, what's possible. And so I hope to make some changes in the field before I really age out of being able to do the work. Yeah, I love to hear that. So for those listeners that have been turned on to what you've had to say today, what are the best resources for those who want to learn more about the developmental approach, I'll let you plug anything, uh, both in print or offered through the Institute, either in person or virtual that you want to. Thank you. My very favorite thing of all is the one-year online training program that I run. It's a very comprehensive training program for couples therapists, and we have lots and lots of experienced therapists as well as beginners in it. That's a one-year program that involves just a whole lot of different aspects to it. There's a good description of that at couplesinstitute.com forward slash developmental model. And we open slots in that two or three times each year. So that's my very favorite. But also on couplesinstitute.com, we have a lot of separate, smaller webinars some programs on infidelity, some programs on working with fighting couple, one on rethinking first session. If somebody just wants to dip their toe in the water, I suggest going to couplesinstitute.com and looking at the store there and choosing whatever is fitting your needs at the moment. We've had husbands and wives, as I said, on the show. We've even had Patrick and Stephanie Carnes, father and daughter. I don't think uh, you maybe your unique contribution, a husband and wife and their daughter who is now joining you. We're a profession of couple and family therapists. So when we're talking about the family, what does your daughter think of what you all have done and what is your hope for her to carry on what you've done with your model? She's in her thirties right now and her name is Molly. And she Oh, my daughter's name Molly. That's a good sign. That's neat. So Molly does not have a license as a therapist, so she's not ever going to do what we do. But I just, in the last week, have started doing some programs for some of the dating sites with her where she is teaching younger dating people about the developmental stages and what that means in terms of being how to be a more authentic self in your process of dating. She did a book club for a number of young people going through a lot of our materials. My hope is that she will bring more of the work to the public and to getting it out in the hands of people who are not in therapy. Outstanding. Thank you so much, Ellen Bader. It was such a pleasure to have you here with us on the AMFT podcast. 
Eli back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast. You know, when you visit couplesinstitute.com, not only can you find out everything you need to know about training opportunities with the developmental model of couples therapy, you can also see about Ellen and her husband Pete's travels to Kenya over the years where they have successfully helped start 13 schools. We didn't get to talk about that on the podcast today, but certainly a worthwhile venture in addition to everything Ellen has done to help the couples therapy movement over the last 40 years. Exciting things coming up in the world of AAMFT. For the third year in a row, AMFT brings you the Systemic Family Therapy Conference Fully virtual, October 25th through 27th coming up. And registration is now open. The SFTC, as we call it, sponsored by the AAMFT, is a comprehensive event providing systemic thinkers with personal and professional development and cutting-edge clinical skills and training. This event will examine the role of systemic therapy in various settings across communities and the globe. The virtual three-day conference features workshops based on these key topics, enhancing the systemic thinker as an individual focusing on personal and professional growth, number one. Number two, developing cutting-edge clinical skills and training to propel the MFT profession forward. And number three, integrating MFT values into vital community and institutional systems that shape global societies. How our micro-work as relational healers, impacts the macro, as I always like to say. We are excited to announce that this flagship event, again, for the third year in a row, will be completely virtual, bringing together attendees from every continent in the world, eliminating barriers to access. Maybe you don't have the resources historically to travel to a face-to-face conference. Well, AMFT now brings the conference to you. We look forward to building this community and strengthening the profession to make a global impact. You can get up to 14.5 continuing education credits. You have a choice of choosing from 70-plus sessions and learn from a 40 plus really excellent speakers and presenters. Go to amft.org. You'll see it on the front page. We'll be talking about it in the weeks to come. You can also go to elikaram.com. Find out everything that's going on with me, including uh, several books I've had released. I think it will be really interesting to our listeners, bringing common factors to life in couple and family therapy. And I also have a textbook slash exam review book from Springer Plus, from Springer Publishers that gets you ready for the national licensure exam if you're one of our younger listeners uh, trying to move forward in your quest to become a licensed marriage and family therapist. Thank you so much, everybody that drops me a line. You can get a hold of me at Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com and a special shout out to Kathleen Haley, the daughter of the late, great Jay Haley, who recommended our guest today, Ellen Bader. And I really appreciate hearing from you, the listener, that helps us shape the content as we roll strong through our fifth season of the AAMFT podcast. You can find all the back installments, the leaders, and the hot topics that use the systemic thinker 
need to know about wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm partial to Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Also find us at Google Play. Please drop us a line. Also leave a rating and review that helps us rise through the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. Because without you, we are nothing. Until next time, my friends, stay strong, stay systemic.